Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough I reckon you can do this you know I believe you're going to get there the eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power it's a part of you it took half of my life my eating disorder and it literally nearly took my life but we, we've seen recovery in in kids in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Shane Jeffrey with me. Shane is an accredited practicing dietitian and accredited sports dietitian with 25 years of experience as a dietitian in both the private and public sectors, working almost exclusively in the field of eating disorders. Shane is the current treasurer of the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders and the director and founder of River Oak Health and Food Mind Body. Two Queensland-based practices dedicated to the treatment of eating, weight and body image concerns. Shane developed the RAVES eating model and evidence-informed framework for supporting a recovery-focused relationship with food and nutrition. Shane has an interest in training and supervising those working in the eating disorder field, and he values his most treasured learnings from those with lived experience, that being some of his past employers and the many families and clients he has had the pleasure of working with over the past 25 years. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shane. Thanks, Millie. It's lovely to be here and it's always nice to catch up with you. So am I. I feel like it's been ages since we've been able to actually have a proper catch up. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You know, life just catches up and things get busy and that sort of thing. But yeah, I've, I'm loving the work you're doing and the, the podcast is fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. You know that I am a longtime admirer of your work, so I can't wait to get it on this pod so that we can have other people who aren't aware of the amazing work that you're doing, getting an understanding of it. What made you decide to specialise in eating disorders? Well, uh, to be honest, I, I fell into it. It was never on my radar and I was working at the Gold Coast Hospital and I was one of two dietitians there at the time and I was covering the mental health ward and I I still remember my first patient I ever saw. I remember her name. I remember her diagnosis, her presentation, everything. And at the time, I was sort of like a little bit frustrated with general dietetics. And, yeah, I saw this patient and it was just, it just blew my mind. Like it was so much different to what traditional dietetics was. And so from there, I had a real interest in understanding it more because we got next to no training in eating disorders when I was a student. And then I started working at a private eating disorder clinic on the Gold Coast back in the mid-90s. And it was at that clinic that I really fell in love with eating disorders. I had a, a wonderful boss who was from the States who had a lived experience and she was amazing. And from there, yeah, my interest just really, really grew. I became really passionate about the area. And also really from that early experience, 
really had the pleasure and I feel really lucky that I was exposed to the lived experience offerings from that perspective. As I say, my boss was somebody who had a lived experience and she just taught me so much. There are certain people throughout your career who just have that impact and she's certainly one of them and I, I still stay in touch with her today. That's so, so amazing that you had that lived experience running through it right from the beginning. It's funny, Millie. After working there for about three or four years, I went to the UK for a little while and I was over there for two years and I came back and I was meant to pick that role up again and work at that private clinic, but they changed ownership and they weren't doing eating disorders anymore. So then I just started looking around for other work and then another opportunity came up with a new eating disorder clinic that was being established in Brisbane, which at the time was called Footprints of Angels, which was later called Bronte Foundation. And that was headed up by Jan Cullis, who also has lived experience of being a parent. You know, I was really lucky for the first eight to 10 years of my career in eating disorders, I was working alongside people with a lived experience. And for me, I really feel that had an impact on my taking to the area because they just brought so much reality and so much authenticity to the space that I was working in. So that was my introduction to eating disorders was largely through that lived experience model. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah. It, it lived experience when we know it's so important when we look at recovery. And are you pleased to see the role of recovery coaches becoming more legitimized in this space? Yeah, well, I think the whole lived experience space has so much to offer, I think. And As a health professional, I often credit most of my richest and deepest learnings to the people I work with, whether they be the clients or the families. Obviously, we learn from textbooks and we learn from conferences and research, but it's that real life aspect and that different lens that you get to understand things through from that lived experience space. The notion of recovery coaches, I think, is a great addition to what we offer in terms of eating disorders. And the biggest challenge I find is how we can integrate them more coherently into the treating team, you know, in terms of decision-making and treatment planning and that sort of thing. But there is so much that can be offered by recovery coaches. And even now, I find once people are aware that they're working with someone with a lived experience, such as a recovery coach, the messages take on a slightly different context. So As a dietitian, I can make recommendations and have discussions and talk to my clients about the importance of carbohydrates, the importance of eating regularly, the importance of A, B, C, or D. And sometimes the person I'm working with will will struggle to take that message on, but they might hear a very similar or same message from a recovery coach from that lived experience lens, and it's just taken differently. And I think that there is something about that connection with having been there level of understanding, empathy at a different level that is offered through that lived experience connection. And from my perspective, I I see it over and over again. So for me, I'm I'm really um, grateful. The lived experience space is really opening up, certainly in Australia, in terms of part of integrating into that treating team. I guess the biggest challenges that we have from a broader perspective is trying to get some of those qualifications recognised in terms of the eating disorder space, insurances and how that works, and then also how to um, support the recovery coach workforce in terms of the work that they're doing so that they feel adequately supported 
and also feel like a valued member of the treating team because I feel that traditionally we see the treating team as being the dietitian, the psychologist, the doctor, that sort of thing. But I think the treating team also includes family, friends, recovery coaches, and the more cohesive that team is in the broader context, I feel the greater support that's available for the person we're trying to help navigate through recovery. I couldn't agree more. For people who might doubt a dietitian's value in in a treatment team, can you explain why a dietitian is an absolute integral part of a treatment team? Yeah, definitely. You know, I might be a little bit biased being a dietitian myself, but I think that dietitians have a really thorough understanding of the physiology of the body, the blood work, how the organs work, that sort of thing. We have a good understanding of nutrition at a level that goes much beyond what you see on social media and newspapers and that sort of thing. Like we're often spending four to five years at uni understanding nutrition and the relationship to the body and illness states and that sort of thing. But I think that dietitians are are really effective at simplifying complex messages about nutrition. And the reason I think this is important is because in the world of social media and diet culture and that sort of thing, there are so many misleading messages around nutrition that are often taken as truth. And that can be facilitated through influencers. It can be communicated through multiple social media platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And the frustrating thing for me, I guess, is that a lot of these misconceptions are then formulated into dietary rules for people with eating disorders because they're often aligned with some element of truth. Now, as dietitians, we can have discussion and provide education around the way the body works and the value of nutrition and that sort of thing. But we also appreciate that doesn't necessarily mean that the person is going to trust us. And so our role, as I see it, is firstly about trying to provide them with an alternative understanding of nutrition and how the body works. The other thing dietitians are quite good at is supporting behaviour change and thought change. And so when we put those things together, we've got nutrition, we've got an understanding of physiology, we've got behavioural change, and we tend to be fairly practical as well. So we like to give people practical ideas on how they can go about changing their relationship with food. And from that point of view, as a profession, we're fairly unique. And the other thing I'd like to say is that Dietitians who work in this space are generally very passionate as well. They're on board, often very client-focused. So most dietitians who work in eating disorders probably prefer not to tell people what to do, but rather to work with people to help them find their own path, which I think is really important. I often think if I try and tell people what to do or I write out a meal plan, if the person's not ready for that, I might as well just put a bin outside my door because that's probably where it's going to end up. (laughs) The other thing I think dietitians are good at is trying to match treatment to where the person's at in their their stage of change or in their stage of illness or however we want to look at that. We try and work with where the person's at really, which for a lot of people is, you know, somewhat comforting, I guess. You and your colleagues are very, very good at doing that. Full credit to you because you have an amazing way of, as you say, working with where the client's at because otherwise... 
that meal plan will be in the rubbish bin. And that's totally pointless. There's a four-letter word that people often use to try and convince dietitians that they're not in need of making changes to their behavior um, around eating. It's the F word, fine. I'm fine. I go to uni and work. I'm fine. My blood works fine. My potassium is normal. I am fine. How do you counter that? It's it's quite common, isn't it? Like a lot of people that we work with will have good blood work. They'll have good organ function. Their hearts will be working. They'll be somewhat functional in terms of holding down a job or attending school or getting good grades at uni. The question often comes up, you know, why, why does this have to be an issue? Like I'm doing okay. And the first thing I always come back to is what would your reaction be if one of your friends was in your situation? They were still going to school, they're still going to uni, their blood works okay, but you're observing them restricting their intake, losing weight, engaging in eating disorder behaviour, maybe becoming socially isolated. Would you be worried for your friend or would you think that they're fine? And the purpose of that is to try and help the person look at things through a different lens and help them get in more in touch with their values and their understanding of what fine might really look like outside of the eating disorder mask. So I might start somewhere like that. The other thing I might look at is exploring, is this where you want to be in 12 months time or two years time? Like things are going okay for you now. And I appreciate that you're at uni and college and school or whatever it may be. But if you had to ride this out for another 12 months, is that what you consider to be an ideal situation or are there some changes you might like to make to that? And if you want to make changes, what would those changes be? Is there anything that might make life a bit easier for you? So we might take that angle. Another angle we might take is exploring the internal thought process of the person. So they may be doing school and functional and those sort of things. But how much of your time is dedicated to thinking about food, thinking about weight, planning nutrition, counting calories, thinking about exercise? And is that amount of time reasonable or are there other things you'd like your mind to be focusing on? So maybe you're still doing well at school, but maybe to keep getting the grades you've traditionally been getting, you've got to study twice as long. So are there things that we can do to maybe still support you being at school, but maybe we can do things more effectively so you've got time to develop interests that have maybe fallen away? And on that point, we might look at, okay, if we go back before the eating disorder, what sort of things did you enjoy doing? And how many of those things are you still doing now? Like where is the joy in your life? And trying to explore things from a whole range of different angles depending on the client's presentation. But I tend to feel that even for those people that are identifying as being fine, there's generally, in my experience, always a part of them that wants change. We've just got to try and be open and patient enough to find out what that is. And I think sometimes we just jump straight in and go, okay, we've got to fix this. We've got to get you eating more, we've got to get you gaining weight, we've got to do these things without taking time to really understand the person's story, their struggles, their perception of change, their reasons for wanting to hang on to the eating disorder. 
before we get in and do that. And I think that's really important because as health professionals, we might see the eating disorder as being destructive and unhelpful and life-threatening. But for the person, the eating disorder might be quite helpful and helping them cope with day-to-day life or helping them manage difficult situations. And so I feel that if we just go in there and do our nutrition thing without understanding the context of the eating disorder in that person's life, we'll often find ourselves just butting heads and being on different pages. And it's a really great question that you've asked because what it does is it helps us try and get on the same page as the person by understanding what they mean by fine and is that a a true representation of how they would like their life to be. Now, you developed the renowned RAVES eating model, which for those listeners who don't know, it is a robust and evidence-informed framework that supports the development of positive food relationships. With over 10 years of real-world application, the RAVES eating model has been adopted by dietitians, psychologists, general practitioners, and psychiatrists across a variety of clinical populations. Having been presented at both the national and international level, the RAVES eating model provides a no-frills, step-by-step approach to challenging diet culture. Can you share with our listeners what led to the development of RAVES and why you believe it's so effective? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Ray's was, it was born out of nothing really. What was happening is I was working at Bronte Foundation and we had some, we were expanding our services. So we had some other dietitians coming to join the clinic and I was asked to, to do some training. And I thought, well, how can I streamline training down to simple terms that is fairly structured? And so I thought about how do I work with the people I work with? And when I sat down and started thinking about it, the first thing I would always do is establish regular eating, trying to get regular meals, regular snacks. Once we had that pattern of eating, we would then start trying to build up the nutrition to a point where they're getting their nutritional needs met from an adequacy point of view. And then once people had adequacy, that sort of accounts for the malnutrition and starvation and the medical side of it to help nutrition requirements be met. But it doesn't really improve quality of life because the reality is, is you can eat regularly and adequately eating probably seven or eight different foods. So once we get to adequacy, we then start working on variety and, and trying to break down rules and think about, okay, well, what is it that makes brown rice okay to eat but white potato not okay to eat? What is it that makes white bread not so favourable and really heavy grain bread favourable? So we start really challenging dietary rules when we start looking at variety and then after that increase in variety then starts to create more opportunities for people to engage in social eating. So that social eating might be eating more of the foods aligned with what the family's eating. It might be having more flexibility to have sleepovers and eat whatever the friend's family's eating. It might mean going out to a cafe or a restaurant with family or friends or participating in Christmas and eating, you know, a wider variety of foods. So variety is really the pathway to eating socially, which for people who have become more socially isolated is really the pathway to greater social connectedness. 
And then the last part of the RAVES model is spontaneity, which is really about adopting a, a flexible approach to nutrition where you're not really guided by rules, you're not guided by nutritional labels, you're just guided by the foods that you eat, eating regularly. And then after that, we start to explore intuitive eating and hunger and fullness and that sort of thing. So from my experience, and the one thing I really like about the RAVES model is its, is its simplicity. You know, and as long as you can remember what each of those elements stands for in terms of regularity, adequacy, variety, eating socially and spontaneity, you've always got a framework that you can come back to if, if you're struggling. And, and then that's what's made it successful, I think, is just the simplicity of it. And I feel, and certainly the people we work with, their feedback is that if they've got those five key elements integrated into their approach to eating, they generally have a pretty positive, relaxed, comfortable relationship with food. Obviously, it doesn't necessarily take in some of the other concerns that might come up around body image and weight and other things, but we sort of use the RAVES model to, to get evidence on how the body responds to those different principles of RAVES as a way of getting evidence to support improving not only relationship with food but also the relationship with their mind and, and their thoughts around food and also their body and body image as well. So it's something that is the backbone of pretty much every client I see. And as you mentioned in your introduction there, it's 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 been taken up much more widely. You know, it started off with me just trying to put some structure into how I worked to train other dietitians. And then, and then when I was working with Queensland Health, we didn't have the RAVES acronym. At the time, we had R-A-V-S-C, I think it was. And then one of my dietitian's colleagues, she said, well, why don't you just swap the S and the E around and then you've got RAVES and then it's easy to remember because it's a word. And that's what we did. And it's, it's just been its own little beast since then, really. Oh, it's such an amazing model. I use it with my clients all the time. And it's just, as you say, the, it, the key is in the simplicity because so much of eating disorder recovery is really complicated. So it's great to have something, you know, a framework that's so simple to come to come back to. Now, let's talk about meal plans and their role in eating disorder recovery because I've got clients who find them really helpful and others who find that their eating disorders use them to keep them trapped in rules and rigidity. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think meal plans are very interesting. Again, you know, I think it really comes back to trying to have a conversation with the people we're working with around what they feel is going to be helpful for them and understanding that where we start is not necessarily where we finish. So, for example, I'll often present a range of options if we're sort of at that stage where we're starting to look at nutritional guidelines, meal plans, that sort of thing. And I often say, look, from a nutritional management point of view, we've got a couple of options. And what I'd like to do is just share them with you and see which one, if any, stands out as being more helpful for you or not. And so at one end, you've got a fairly prescriptive meal plan, which might mean a breakfast, we want you to have this and this, and at morning tea, we want you to have this, and lunch, we want you to have this, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's very prescriptive. And then at the other end, you have something that is much more relaxed, which is just more of a guideline, I guess. And so for me, we might start with 
what I'd like you to try and do is I'd just like to try and think about what sort of things you might give a friend of yours for breakfast. So if you had a friend staying over and they said, could you get me some breakfast? I just want a bowl of cereal. How much cereal would you put in the bowl? How much milk would you put with it? And what would that look like? And you could just start there. Or if they wanted you to give them, say, eggs on toast, how much toast would you give them? How much eggs would you give them? And so we can start fairly generic like that. And and some people like that because it gives them a lot of flexibility. Some people don't like that because there's too many choices to be made. There's no direction at all and they just get overwhelmed with making a choice. And then the next layer that I, I sort of work with is, well, let's have a think about maybe making sure that you're getting balanced nutrition because, you know, when your body's undernourished, when you're working on recovery, part of adequacy is thinking about balance. So we need fruits, we need vegetables, we need carbohydrates. So let's have a look at what that might look like throughout the day. So we might say, well, at breakfast, lunch and dinner, we want you to have a carbohydrate food or a grain food because that's important in fueling your muscles, fueling your brain, helping your metabolism, that sort of thing. We want you to have protein throughout the day to look after your muscles and your organs. And then we want fruit and salad and we need some dairy in there as well to look after your bones and stuff. So we might map that out on a meal plan and say, okay, well, at breakfast there might be some carbs, some dairy and some fruit. At morning tea there might be a dairy and some nuts, et cetera, et cetera. And so it gives people a little bit more guidance, but it gives them freedom of choice in the type of food they might eat and what they might put together for breakfast, for example. And then the next layer is is probably a little bit more prescriptive in terms of a meal plan where we might say, well, at breakfast, you know, you could have three wheat mix with milk and uh, an orange or you could have two bits of toast with two eggs and some avocado or you could have a banana smoothie with some yogurt and cinnamon or whatever. The difficulty with meal plans is that on one hand it gives people they don't really have to make choices about what they're eating because it's been discussed. They sometimes feel that the decision has been made. But the other thing is is that the disadvantage is that you can only put so much information on a meal plan, right? You can only have three or four or five options. And then if somebody doesn't want one of those options and they want something else, sometimes they feel they don't have permission to have it because it's not on the plan. So... They're the sort of ways I think about meal planning. And the other thing is how much detail to provide around quantities. So obviously we want to try and move away from calorie counting. And we also want to try and move away from measuring and quantifying food because if for some people, if we say, well, we want you to have three quarters of a cup of breakfast cereal, Working out what three quarters of a cup is can take some people five, 10, 15 minutes. And as they're working that out, that's adding to anxiety, it's adding to stress. There's a lot of eating disorder dialogue happening. And so even if they're able to get that quantification down pretty quickly and they're able to build up trust in food, the risk is that a dependence on measuring can develop so that when they're eating at home and they're able to measure their food, they can eat quite well. But if they're on holiday or if they're having a sleepover or they've left the measuring cup at home, they don't really have the trust to 
to just free pour food or to trust their own intuition. So they become dependent on measuring, which doesn't provide that full element of freedom that we're looking for in recovery. You know, when it comes to quantity, for some people will provide an opportunity to measure maybe for a short period of time, but using that measuring as an educational tool. But often I'll start with what would you give another person? And most people I work with, when you ask them that question, how many wheat bix would you give them? How many bits of toast would you give them? How much filling would you put on the sandwich? Their judgment around food is often pretty good. It's just that they don't trust it. And so part of the process and the work we do as dietitians, I guess, is trying to help them build up a more trusting relationship, not only in food, but also in their own judgment and their own decision-making. Because once we step out of the picture as dietitians, we want people to have the internal resources to be able to manage those processes and decisions. Often in eating disorder recovery, people can think they are recovered when they've really slipped into orthorexia. How do you navigate that with clients? Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways it comes down to how to define recovery. When I've been to conferences where we've got leading people in eating disorder field around the world who can't agree on what recovery is. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that recovery can be measured in, in lots of different ways. So it can be measured by a person's health parameters. It can be measured by their social connectedness. As a dietitian, one of, one of the things, alongside those others, but one of the things I look at is, is where they're sitting with, relative to raves. And so somebody with orthorexia might be eating regularly, they might be eating adequately, but they probably don't have a lot of variety and they probably don't have a lot of spontaneity. If I jumped on the phone and, and called up somebody with orthorexia to come and join me at my birthday party, which is at the Italian restaurant, they'd probably really struggle with that because of the flexibility and and the perception that maybe some of those foods aren't healthy or they might be worried about what the chef might be adding to the meals. So with orthorexia, I think it's a scenario where, again, the focus on health in some ways becomes unhealthy. And it comes back to the question we spoke about before in terms of this notion, I'm fine, I'm functional, I'm going to work, I'm still at uni, I'm getting good grades. Like, Why do I have to eat these other foods? And some people might argue that if they're getting regular and adequate nutrition and they're eating across the food groups, that nutritionally they're actually okay, which might be reasonable, but from a a broader perspective and a social engagement perspective, that's where it starts to fall down. As you start looking at things like social connectedness, social eating, engagement with family, that's when orthorexia really starts to have its biggest impact. And so we try and tie people back to their values around those things. And as we do work around values, that starts to often get them at least reflecting a little bit on why they're holding on to these belief systems so strongly because there are so, again, there are so many misnomers around food, around what's good and what's not good and that sort of thing that a lot of the information that gets drawn on to formulate eating rules, whether it be orthorexia or eating disorders, a lot of this information was never meant to be put together. You know, it's just a little bit of information here and a little bit of information there and that sort of thing, but it was never meant to all come together as one thing. And so it's, it's trying to unpack that and get back to basics because eating was never really meant to be complicated. 
And I often have this thing and I laugh about it with my clients because we'll often talk about our goals of treatment. And one of the goals of treatment that I'll often discuss is at the end of treatment, I want you eating like a two-year-old. And the reason for that is, is that two-year-olds don't overthink things. They haven't been exposed to the diet culture. They haven't been exposed to what's good and what's bad. If they see food and they're hungry, they'll eat it. It doesn't matter if it's lollies, chips, chocolates, broccoli, whatever. And if they put it in their mouth and they don't like it, they won't eat it. And their eating is often governed by hunger. And that's where I think we want to try and help our clients get to is this notion where they're not eating with their head so much, but they're more eating with their body and trusting that that natural intuition that they were born with, those natural body processes. Mm, trust is so, so, so huge. And I often have clients feeling this pressure to go dairy-free or go gluten-free because it's the in thing amongst their peer group. What are your views on when there's on this, when there's no clinical reason for their for them to eliminate these food groups? It's it's funny you ask because I had a conversation with a dietitian yesterday about this. There's really two sides of the argument, I think. One is is that we have to respect people's choices. But the other thing is if respecting their choices is compromising their health, then it needs to be addressed. And you know, when you start cutting out a whole food group like dairy food or carbohydrates or proteins, whatever it might be, then the research from all around the world would say that over time that's not going to be a positive health outcome because different food groups each have a role in the diet from a dietary balance point of view, vitamin, minerals, fiber, that sort of thing. So for me, it's really trying to understand what the person identifies as being the benefits in cutting out gluten or cutting out dairy or cutting out meat and plant proteins or whatever it might be. Doing some education exploring that space, where do they want to be in 12 months? What does their life look like if they hold on to this in the long term and start unpacking it? If one of your friends wanted to go gluten-free and they didn't need to and was going to put their health at risk, would you encourage that? So always coming back to those internal values that can sometimes be hard to access, but I find that they're often identified through externalising the decision-making process. In summary, My goal would be to try and understand the person's perspective and then have a look at how we can explore the introduction of those foods back in, especially if it's having a negative impact on their health and well-being and compromising their their diet quality, which from a raves perspective really sits under adequacy. And what are your views on veganism and eating disorder recovery? To me, it's very contextual. You know, if I'm working with somebody who's grown up in a vegan family and they developed an eating disorder, and they've been vegan for years prior to that, then, you know, it might be something that we would be certainly more open to as opposed to somebody who's developed a vegan way of eating throughout the development of their eating disorder. So one is the context and not only for the individual but also in the person's life, their family history, that sort of thing. The second thing is is that, Depending on the nature of the presentation, one of the things that we understand from a nutrition point of view, and a lot of this research is done in the sports science space, is that your body uses animal-based proteins to build lean tissue and rebuild the body more effectively than what it uses, plant-based proteins. And so from that point of view, we might have a discussion that 
from the point of recovery and re-nourishment, is there any space that we can make to incorporate animal protein during the recovery process with the view of potentially going back to veganism later? And, you know, we've worked in that framework with a number of people and some people who have sworn black and blue that they want to be vegan after recovery, throughout recovery, identify, well, I'm actually quite enjoying eating meat and I don't, maybe I thought I was not eating it for animal rights reasons and that sort of thing, but now I understand that it's more an eating disorder thing and that wasn't really why I stopped eating it. It's really contextual. On an inpatient setting, it's, it's virtually impossible to get a suitable diet for vegans, which is really, really challenging. But to me, again, you know, it's all about having a conversation, being transparent, understanding the client's perspective, meeting them with where they're at and helping them make an informed choice. Like I have, having been in in this space for 25 years or so, I don't know if I've been too successful in turning vegans into meat eaters just because I want them to. It's something that they have to want themselves and they have to see the benefit in to really get on board. And for those, you know, I've worked with lots of people and you, you see it a lot in inpatient treatment units. People get admitted to hospital. There's no vegan option. So they eat meat, they eat cheese, they eat animal products. But once they go out of hospital, they, they just stop eating it again. You know, I think whatever we do as dietitians, we've got to have a mind on the sustainability of the recommendations we're making in the context of treatment, but more so in the broader context of longer-term recovery and that person's relationship with food based on values, ethics, wellness and health. It's a fairly complex scenario. I would definitely say it's not a black and white answer because of those contextual issues. Can you explain underfeeding syndrome and why it is more common than refeeding syndrome? Yeah, I guess underfeeding syndrome is something that's not very well understood and not widely published in the literature. But I guess in terms of with refeeding syndrome, one of the things that tends to happen is when people have been starved or gone for, I guess, an extended period without adequate nutrition, the body shifts the way it gets its energy. So it um, has to adapt to inadequate energy. It has to start its metabolism. It has to change its energy types of nutrition that it's using and that sort of thing. And then when you start refeeding somebody a more adequate amount, you get shifts in salts in the blood. You get shifts in certain electrolytes. You get changes in blood sugar levels, fluid shifts, and that can get to a point where it gets life-threatening for people. So refeeding syndrome is very well published in the, in the area of eating disorders, but not very well researched. So what I mean by that is, is refeeding syndrome was probably first mentioned maybe in the 1980s. And it was identified that people with eating disorders, especially anorexia nervosa, are at extreme risk of refeeding syndrome. But the literature doesn't really support that, especially in, a, in an outpatient setting. So in an outpatient setting, we don't see a lot of refeeding syndrome as such. And one of the reasons is because in most outpatient settings, people with anorexia nervosa find it difficult to increase their intake significantly in a short amount of time. Whereas in an inpatient setting, 
people are often on nasogastric feeds, they're on meal support with staff members. So intake is often increased more acutely and more rapidly in an inpatient setting, which is one of the things that's said to contribute to refeeding syndrome. In 2013, 2014, there are a whole series of studies published in the Journal of Adolescent Health. And it really challenged our understanding of refeeding syndrome where adolescents in particular were fed fairly aggressively to the point where they're meeting their requirements within two or three days of admission. And what we found was in those studies is that people weren't developing refeeding syndrome. So we always used to think that with anorexia nervosa, we needed to start with low levels of nutrition and go slow in terms of increasing that. But what we find now is that we can be more assertive with our refeeding starting at higher rates, again, especially in outpatient settings and inpatient settings as well. Underfeeding syndrome is probably less researched. It's probably less of a a common term in in the health professions. But what we tend to see is with underfeeding syndrome is is sort of like starvation. And what we see there is you see a couple of things happening in the medical side of things and then you see a few things happening in the cognitive side of things. We know that when people go through extended periods without adequate nutrition, they sort of drift towards what we call a semi-starved or a starved state. And it doesn't mean you have to be not eating anything and you have to be completely starving. But what happens is as each day goes by where your body's not getting what it needs, that becomes cumulative. So a little bit missed today adds on to a little bit missed tomorrow, adds on to a bit missed the next day, and that all adds up. And what we see is your body's going to find a way of coping with that. And some of the things that we tend to see is from a behavioural point of view, people become more obsessive, they become more rigid in their thinking, they become more repetitive, they become more isolated in their behaviour. Cognitively, mood becomes more variable and also more low, so people tend to report lower moods. Anxiety becomes more prevalent, so we know that people who may not never have had any issues with anxiety become more anxious as they become undernourished and and more moving into that underfed state. And then we also see changes in the body. So metabolism starts to fall, the liver functions can start to rise, and that's where we start to see the liver cells basically eating themselves away. Bone health starts to deteriorate. So underfeeding syndrome is probably something that we see in the absence of treatment due to that semi-starved or starved state as as the body tries to work out how it's going to cope and keep all these systems going on a fraction of the nutrition that it needs. And then refeeding syndrome really comes into play when the person starts improving their nutrition, accessing treatment, and the body's got to start shifting how it works in order to accommodate the fact that it's got more nutrition now and it can start moving those systems back to a state of normal functioning, normal stability, that sort of thing. How important to you as a leading professional in the field of eating disorders is the need for family and carers to be involved in dietetic consults and in the greater multidisciplinary collaborative process? I love this question. I was having a conversation with a client earlier in the week and one of the things I was saying is that In my experience, and other people may have a different experience, but in my experience, 
people who do well in treatment generally have family support. And doesn't matter if it's anorexia, bulimia, et cetera, et cetera, that support system is, is important. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't have access to family support, you can't get better because you definitely can. As some of the listeners will know, if someone is living with an eating disorder, the recovery journey is, is very challenging. And what support people do, whether it be family members, friends, the multidisciplinary team, what that support system does is it helps you negotiate the recovery journey. It helps you in those challenging times. And so from my perspective, family involvement is is essential, especially from a a dietetic point of view. And the reason for that is, is multiple, I think. The first thing that comes to mind for me is that if we're working with younger clients, so people, say, still living at home, not necessarily based on age, but people living at home, parents are usually doing a lot of the shopping for food, doing a lot of the cooking for food, and therefore having them involved in treatment gives them a voice. It helps us talk to them about those processes in terms of shopping, cooking, meal preparation, portioning, and how they can be aligned with the recovery journey. It also gives us an opportunity to help people understand eating disorders. You know, we know that eating disorders are very misunderstood in the general community. And as a parent, there are no lessons on how to deal with eating disorders, like there are on how to deal with lots of things. So being involved in treatment is an opportunity to educate and and help parents and family and support people understand the dynamics of the eating disorder, the behaviour around the eating disorder trying to understand that, you know, when times get tough, it's the eating disorder, not the person. So trying to put some separation there. And then third thing is, is, is at meal times. you know, parents can be a really good ally at meal times, as can other support people. And I think that the most important thing around this, I think, is having a discussion around what that support's going to look like. Because what we tend to find is support is often welcome if it's provided in a way that the person's receptive to. So if there's an imbalance there and I feel that I'm going to support a client by using strategy A and the client feels strategy A isn't helpful, then it doesn't matter how much I provide that support, it's probably not going to be helpful. So having parents involved in treatment generally but also in dietetic care allows those discussions to be open, transparent, collaborative, inclusive, so that when we're making decisions, we're trying to make them collectively. And that's something I always have in mind. You know, as a dietitian, I try to refrain from telling my clients what to do and prefer to work with the clients and with the families together to come up with a plan of action for what our next step's going to be. So I might propose some ideas, but I think it's about trying to have a collaborative approach to treatment because the more we can get everybody on the same page from the treating professionals to the client to the families the support people the smoother the process tends to be the more people tend to be moving in the same direction which is really important in the treatment process i think it's empowering for the client too oh definitely definitely and and i think that you you really pick that up in, in treatment if you have that type of process embedded in there the client's experience is just a very different one i think 
Now, it's common for people with eating disorders to develop gut problems and continue to struggle with them post-recovery. Have you got any tips on how to navigate this? Yeah, this is this is another good question, Millie. That this stuff comes up all the time in, in treatment in terms of gut health, gut problems, etc. And it's a really difficult one because sometimes it often just gets put down to the eating disorder and malnutrition and that sort of thing, but there may be other factors involved. So, for example, we know that when people become underfed, undernourished, semi-starved, that there can be a heightened sensitivity to lactose and some other things in food that can lead to some intolerances and sensitivities. The main thing, I guess, is to try and seek out dietetic support from somebody who has experience in eating disorders and is also experienced in gut health because it can be challenging pulling those two things apart. Now, the standard process across the globe really for managing with this stuff is first of all to try and work on re-nourishing the person and then seeing what's left. And one of the reasons for that is is because some people might identify, well, I've got a lactose intolerance, I've got bloating, I've got fullness, I might have irritable bowel syndrome, et cetera. But what we find is that with better nutrition, some of those and many of those symptoms and experiences that the person has around their gut resolve over time. And the way I think about it is that we can't expect an undernourished gut to work well. And so if we think about what's happening in an undernourished gut, the microflora, so all the bugs, the healthy bugs in our gut that help things work, that gets changed. The strength of our muscles and the ability of our digestive system to move things through the digestive system changes. Our stomach might empty slower into the small intestine, so that can lead to fullness and bloating. Constipation, diarrhea can be a problem. And so navigating this stuff, as I say, can be really tricky. I think it's a very important conversation to have early on. And and what we tend to find is that there are a, a percentage of people who feel that their eating disorder developed out of pre-existing gut problems. So I was feeling nauseous, I was feeling sick, I was feeling like this. So I started cutting these foods out and I felt better. And so they sort of stick along that process. But the thing is, is that one of the challenges with that notion of self-diagnosis, whether it be putting yourself on a gluten-free diet or a uh, lactose-free diet or going off certain foods, is that there can be other things that can contribute to the person feeling better as well, in addition to the elimination of those things. So it really does involve a comprehensive dietary assessment and also a a comprehensive assessment of, of gut and bowel activity. So we'll often get people to complete a, a diary with their food record, their gut symptoms, their experiences, and start to unpack that because some gut problems will sit higher in the digestive system. Some of them will sit lower in the digestive system. Some of them will be related to pre-existing concerns. Some might be, I guess, challenges that have been identified in the onset of the eating disorder. So it is really difficult. And I always think that the best thing to do is to have a conversation with the treating team and then definitely trying to get an experienced dietitian on board to help unpack that because it, it can be tricky. We often have people, for example, requesting a FODMAPS diet or a, a diet for irritable bowel syndrome. And there can be a lot of risks in putting people on those types of diets early on in treatment. 
because you're limiting a range of nutrients, vitamins, minerals, energy, et cetera. And that's where the comprehensive dietetic assessment becomes really important, trying to understand the person's history, not only from their eating disorder, but also from the perspective of the gut health side of things. Now, binge eating disorder is much more common than people realise, and often people can be in denial about it even being a problem. For listeners out there who are struggling with binge eating but are yet to seek help, what would be your advice? I think, like most eating disorders, binge eating disorders are often often misunderstood. And, you know, there's that element of it. And the other element I think that often comes up for people that we speak to is their their eating disorder is often not taken seriously. It's minimised. There can be stigma associated with it. Stereotypes come into play in terms of the the behaviours and the size of the person and that sort of thing. And all of those things add barriers to people accessing treatment. So binge eating disorder is by far the most common eating disorder when you look at prevalence studies. It's, it, it represents over 50% of eating disorders in most cases. So we're talking big numbers here. And as I say, weight stigma and other stigmas impact on people's ability to access treatment. The advice that I often have for people is, is first of all, to try and access if you feel you have difficulty with binge eating and that that's having a a negative impact on your day-to-day life mental health confidence that sort of thing is trying to make contact with an eating disorder specialist practice or an eating disorder clinician and the reason for that is is that people who work in that eating disorder space not only understand binge eating disorder but they also understand the elements around stigma and neutrality and and accepting things for the presentation and what they are. And so there's a new process that's been introduced in Australia. It was launched earlier this week, actually, which which is the um, Australian New Zealand Eating Disorder Academy credential. It's a a credential that recognises that people working in the eating disorder field have had a minimum amount of training. And having that minimum amount of training means that they've had some exposure to understanding binge eating disorder as well as other eating disorders as well. And so that would be a place that I would recommend people maybe visit, but also having a look in your local area for people who are working within eating disorder services because we we do quite a lot of work with people with binge eating disorder and people in larger bodies. And one of the things we often talk to them about is their client journey, the process that's brought them to us. And one of the things I often talk about is a sense of judgment, a sense of stigma, a sense of not being taken seriously. And we see this a lot in a whole range of health services and across health professions. It might happen at the GP level. It might happen with dietitians they've seen. It might be psychologists. It might be hospitals. And part of that is is that there's this understanding when I do presentations, I often ask people, when I mention the word eating disorders, what's the, what comes to mind? And for most people, the things that come to mind is anorexia nervosa, thin people who don't eat. And what happens, that's the stereotypical understanding. So when somebody in a larger body who binge eats turns up for treatment, that's in contrast to what most people understand an eating disorder to be. And therefore, it's not taken 
seriously. And so it's really, really difficult when you've got to advocate on behalf of yourself to get treatment that you deserve. And it's, it's, it's hard to do that because most people with binge eating disorder have often had an experience where they've been turned away from treatment or they haven't been taken seriously or they have been judged. And so what I would encourage them to do, and I would apologise for all those experiences that people have had because that's not the experience we want, people to be having accessing treatment. So what I would encourage them to do is to try and reach out if they feel they can and to try and reach out to a specific eating disorder service where they can get that understanding, judgment-free acceptance into treatment that they're looking for. Now, as a clinician, what do you hold hope for in terms of the future for eating disorder treatment in Australia? I think the landscape of eating disorders has changed a lot over the last 20 years or so. There's more people working in eating disorders. There's more people training in eating disorders. One of the challenges, I guess, is there's a big gap between the number of people experiencing an eating disorder and the number of professions working in the eating disorder field. And so it's ideally what we would like to have is a situation where everybody with eating disorder can access timely treatment in an equitable way that's accessible to them. And there are lots of challenges in in, in making that happen. So that's Part of the landscape that's changing is that there are more people working in the field and specialising. But the other thing is I think treatment models have changed. You know, 20 years ago it was family-based therapy and cognitive behaviour therapy, but now there are lots of variations of those therapies. There are adjunct therapies, there are recovery coaches, there are residential clinics like Wandi Nerida. So I think there's, there's a lot more understanding about eating disorders There's access to a wider range of services. I think Butterfly Foundation and other services do a fantastic job at trying to reduce stigma and help understanding of eating disorders. And then there's the other part of it, I guess, which is the preventative side. And ideally what we'd like to be doing is having less people getting to a point where they're experiencing an eating disorder in the first place so they don't necessarily need to be accessing those treatment services. And that preventative side, you know, I'm hopeful that'll be an area of the field that really grows and develops and gets momentum over time because we know that once an eating disorder is diagnosed, you can definitely get better, but we also know that journey's challenging, difficult, costly, timely, and that sort of thing. So the more people we can support managing things in their life that avoid the development of an eating disorder in lots of different ways, I think that would be a fantastic step. And so I guess coming back to your question about what am I hopeful for, I guess I'm hopeful for that over the next five, ten years or so that the space of prevention and early intervention can be something that's really developed and getting a lot of funding across the nation. So we're not just throwing money at treatment, we're also looking at prevention as well. It's so important. Yeah. (laughs) The key for the future. It it is because, you know, like even looking at it now, we know the demands on health services. Six months to get into a psychologist, four months to get into a dietitian. It varies from place to place and service to service. Some places you can get in quite quickly, but the demand is so great at the moment. And 
I don't think we're ever going to have enough health professionals who are, you know, skilled and trained and credentialed to help the numbers of people who live with an eating disorder. So therefore, we've got to start moving towards prevention. The other thing, I guess, is that, you know, my hope is that there's more balance in terms of access to eating disorder treatment, which in a way ties in with our discussion point before, that eating disorder services, not just in the outpatient private setting, but also in the public um, settings across Australia, are also able to be accessed by people with binge eating disorder because I know that's always a challenge, both inpatient and outpatient. So, yeah, so I think around the prevention and equality, I guess, are probably the two areas that I have hope for. And then I guess the last thing I would say is around acceptance of different treatment modalities and, you know, acceptance of recovery coaches and acceptance of things like equine therapy that they do at Wandy Narita and stuff like that. And part of that is, is getting an evidence base to demonstrate that it's effective. But I also feel that, you know, we know that those services offer so much for so many people as well. Having a look at how we can refine and individualise our treatment services for people who are accessing treatment, no matter where they are, really. Definitely. Now, in your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? That's such a good question, Millie. And I think Supporting somebody with an eating disorder, I think, comes back to a couple of key principles. The first one, I think, is trying to have an understanding of eating disorders generally. And the reason that's important, I think, is because having an understanding of eating disorders then allows space for empathy and not only empathy for the person with the eating disorder, but also empathy for the struggles and empathy for how it may have developed in the first place. So even now in, in treatment, it's important that those support people have access to good information. And, and I guess in Australia we're lucky, you know, we've got some fantastic state-based organisations, some fantastic charities like NDED. We've got some services like Butterfly Foundation that operate nationally they can provide lots of resources either online, in person, through groups to help that understanding because I, I feel it's really difficult to support somebody with an eating disorder without that understanding. And I've seen it in lots of different spaces. You know, I've seen it from health professionals. I've seen it in inpatient setting. I've seen it from parents. I've seen it from friends. Support people the way I think about it are always well-intentioned. And I think that it's not that the intention is wrong. It's just that when we're supporting somebody with an eating disorder, some of the key factors are communication skills, the language we're using, how we're referring to the eating disorder, how we're supporting the person, how we're managing our own emotions. Are we getting escalated? Are we getting frustrated? Are we getting angry? Are we staying neutral? Those communication skills, I think, tie in really closely with the understanding to, to create an opportunity for people to provide good support and, effect, and effective support. And again, you know, there are some great resources around that through the statewide organisations, Butterfly Foundation. You know, I know that NDED do some fantastic work in that area as well. And there's also a, a great book by Jenna Treasure, which looks at skills and communication for those supporting somebody with an eating disorder, which is a fantastic book 
easy to understand. And so for me, support, I think, really comes back to people having an understanding, having good communication skills, not just on a day-to-day basis, but good communication skills when interacting with somebody with an eating disorder, and then also being able to display empathy for the person's experience. The last thing I would say is it's important to be firm. And firm, I don't mean, you know, get the whip out and crack it sort of thing. I think it's around having it's around having expectations, boundaries and things like that, not on what the outcome's going to be, but on the dynamic in that relationship. Because the reason that firm approach is important is because we've got to be mindful that our emotions, our experiences, the client's distress isn't getting in the way of treatment progression. And so sometimes when you're in that supportive role, it's difficult because you're asking the person you're working with to do stuff that you know is distressing for them and you know may well be distressing for you. And that's a difficult place to be. And so having that, you know, some boundaries and and some firmness around that, and that's where, again, coming back to what we spoke about earlier, being involved in the treatment approach so you can get some ideas and support around how that might align with treatment because the more aligned these support systems are with the treatment approach, we tend to find the more effective they, they tend to be. And then the only, the last thing I would say around support, Millie, is, is for those support people to, to try and make sure that they've got time for themselves away from their supportive role as well. When you're in that supportive role, it is so intense. It's 24-7. It's emotionally draining. But at the end of the day, you may be a parent to other children. You may be supporting people in other ways. You might have a job you've got to look after, other family members, downtime for yourself. You know, so trying to make sure that self-care for any support person is embedded in there. And we talk about that to families, siblings, other health professionals, because if we find that if, if we're not taking care of ourselves in some way, our ability to provide good, effective support for the people we're working with can become a little bit hindered. It's so important. I always say that self-care isn't selfish, it's self-preservation. Definitely. Yeah. Because it's, this isn't a short-term commitment, right? It's a, it's a long-term commitment. It takes time and, and having that self-care built into it, depending on however that looks for each person is an important part of the process, I think for sure. Now, finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? Yeah, I think there's, from my perspective, the words of wisdom is that there's there is always hope. The one thing is that there is absolutely no research to suggest that you cannot get better. There is always opportunity for change to occur. And if you want that change, then it can be possible. Will it be difficult? Yes. Will it be challenging? Yes, it will be. But the other thing is it will be very rewarding. And that's what we understand from people who've been on that same journey. So the first thing is that there's always hope that you can definitely get better. And I would encourage people not to let go of that hope. And that applies for people, as you're saying, Millie, on that journey, but also health professionals, you know, and and parents, because 
it is a long journey. It is difficult. And sometimes we'll be working with people where we'll feel, look, this person seems like they're really stuck at the moment. But if we step back and if we give up on them, then it reinforces that hope isn't there anymore. And so we've got to be mindful of the messages where, you know, we're communicating and how we're communicating those to the people we're working with. So I think the first thing is hope, treatment, recovery, definitely possible. It's never off the cards in in my book. Secondly, is that there's, it's, it's trying to understand that when you have an eating disorder, it comes into your life for many, many different reasons. And yes, there will be reasons why it feels important to, to hold on to the eating disorder. And there will, sometimes it can be difficult to find the reasons why it's important to let it go. And that's where it's important to, to try and build a support team around you, whether that's parents, whether it's friends, whether it's health professionals, whether it's recovery coaches, that can look different for everybody. But trying to put a a team of people around you to help you on the journey, because this is a journey that's complicated, it's challenging, it's difficult, it's it will wear you down. And trying to do it alone can be done, but the degree of difficulty increases. So trying to surround yourself with good people who share your values, who share your desire to change and trying to work with them in a collaborative sort of way to get you to that point where you're interested in getting to in recovery. It takes a village. It does. It does indeed. And I think that's the thing, isn't it, is that when we talk about treatment, you know, treatment, the way I think about it isn't just what happens in the consult room when you're talking to the psychologist, talking to the GP, talking to the dietitian. Yes, that's where you might get the resources and you might get the strategies and you might get the other bits of information. But recovery happens at home. It happens on a day-to-day basis as you're living your life, whatever that may look like. And so as you bring people in to help you on that process, it might be you know, making arrangements at school So someone can come and have lunch with you or it might be making arrangements at work so you can attend appointments. It does take a whole raft of people to pull this together. And that notion that it takes a village is so true here because it it, it identifies that people can come from all sorts of backgrounds, from all sorts of levels to, to make this happen. And I think that's a really important message is that, you know, surrounding yourself with people who share your vision, share your desire to get change happening and support recovery is is integral, I think, to, to the process. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all your incredible words of wisdom. You are amazing and I have so much respect and admiration for all the work that you do in the eating disorder space. You are just a powerhouse, a true powerhouse, and we are so lucky to have you. So thank you, because I know there will be so many listeners out there that will have been furiously writing notes and taking so much from our interview today. Thanks, Mel. It's, it's, it's great to be here and, and to share my thoughts with people. And, and you know, I guess my hope is, is, is that there's a couple of little nuggets in there that people can take away with them and, and move forward, you know, with optimism and hope you know, as they continue their journey. So I appreciate the platform that you've laid in, in your podcast and, and the opportunity to speak to your listeners. I really want to thank you for that and I'm grateful as well. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. 
Your financial support will save lives. Donate at nded.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at nded.org.au.